welcome to the Pro Brew Podcast. This is episode 11, um, and uh, I'm Daniel. I'm here with my uh, compadres, as always, David and George. And we also have um, a special guest um, uh, for this edition of the podcast as well. So, yeah, um, we should probably introduce our friend uh, and, um, well, uh, yeah, George's significant other, uh, Sarah. Um, how are you doing, Sarah? Hello. I'm, I'm very well, thank you. I'm quite excited that we're finally going to talk about some, some women's wrestling on this podcast. Yeah. Hey, we've talked yeah, about a whole exactly. one women's match before. One whole women's <laughs> match. I am I am glad that I can be here to be your token female for this experience. <laughs> we started off very well, I yeah. I mean, the, yeah. we should say yeah. to the listeners, Sarah has been badgering us about doing this for quite a while. Specifically badgering George uh, about doing this. So this has been in the pipeline for a while, so... I mean, the thing is, I think yeah. it was always pretty obvious that you were going to get to this anyway. Because yeah. Especially at some point, you'll you will do an episode on nineties uh, AJW because I will complain until you do. Yeah. At which point, I will have yeah. controversial opinions like um, Toyota and Hokuto are better than Misawa, and those are all conversations that we were going to get to one way or another. And you know, I, I think that this is an important first step on that journey to the point where friendships are ultimately ruined. So you know, not I, relationships I, <laughs> though. That's the important thing. Well, well, not not relationships because because you agree with me, or or, uh, <laughs> or for the purposes of this conversation, you will. <laughs> well, good, just good. Just like to say, all hate mail to at Sarah Parkin um, on Twitter. <laughs> at, yeah. at Sarah Parkin one on Twitter, I am I, I am female and I have opinions, so I'm used to getting shit on the internet. No, no to be but honest. send the hate mail to at Sarah Parkin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't care yeah. about her. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think what we should probably do is, um, uh, first of all, um, we should, maybe Sarah, you could just like uh, maybe tell us um, a little bit about your. Well, what we usually do is this is what we've asked us sort of uh, um, previous guests is um, we could maybe ask you first of all about your first experiences with uh, wrestling, and then maybe Puro in particular, and then we can maybe go from there. Sure. So my my, my first. I couldn't really tell you what my first wrestling match was because I'm I'm of that whole group of people who probably round about the early 2000s was encountering Raw and Smackdown via the one hour abridged versions on Saturday mornings on cable TV. Mm-hmm. So and my my mum didn't like me and my brother watching wrestling very much because well I mean the last time my brother gave me a rock bottom was about a year ago. So we were told we were told um that we weren't allowed to watch wrestling. But mum worked on Saturdays and you know no one could stop us. So we ended up so we ended up watching it a lot anyway. And I uh, I, I bought into kayfabe to such an extent that I was legitimately concerned during the invasion storyline that WWE might go out of business. I was yeah, one of those so kids. Was I. I absolutely was, and uh, yeah, I, I I know you can you can laugh now, but it was real to me, and in many ways, it, in many ways that was still real to me until quite later on in life, when at the age of twenty two, um, this bloke, uh, th- this bloke whom I now somehow live with because I forgave him, he told me that Kane and the Undertaker might not be real brothers. <laughs> Like, oh, I was 22. George. 22? 20... Oh, man! Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, you know, in, in, in many ways, my... Because uh, there was a very long wilderness period in the meantime as well where I wasn't really aware of what was happening in wrestling. And then when I kind of... Uh, I, I met George at uni and he told me that John Cena was the top guy and I was like, what, that shit white rapper? Like, I, I genuinely <laughs> could not believe that this guy, who I had thought nothing of, had somehow gone on to be, like, this massive superstar. That's what I'm saying about Pitbull. It's like, oh. who's the top guy? That shit white rapper. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, yet, and, and yet we are all still singing Greenlight so, from several months I ago. I think you should refer to his proper name as Mr. Worldwide. I'm going to be honest, I, I, I firmly believe that you know pop music has never been the same since the first Beyonce album, so I have absolutely no feelings whatsoever about Pitbull, but it was a passable oh. theme. I'm a Pardon? Pitbull disciple, yeah. I love Pitbull, he's got some great songs. And that's not even a joke, that's just genuine aff- affliction. <laughs> Wait, so, so sorry, sorry. We can, we can, we can cut this if necessary. But we'll get cut. That, you know, you all know that, we're not getting cut. I know. No, nothing gets cut. Nothing gets cut. Sarah, does that mean that you think that the first, that the the, the Beyonce albums after the debut albums are, are inferior to the, the first one? I mean, I I have to say that Crazy in Love is the only Beyonce album where I could still, like, I could give you all the lyrics to at least half of the tracks on it. Like, that's the one that stuck oh, okay. with me and that I owned. Like, that does not mean that, you know, since that moment she hasn't been producing great music, because she she has. But that's probably the one that I'm really attached to. Uh, I've got to say, that's, Lemonade that's was nice. was yeah. awesome. I, I, I'm probably one of those people who's not entirely comfortable with her brand of feminism, but actually she's, you know, she's she's a badass and, you know, she's doing bloody well for herself and you know you can't say fairer than that really but yeah i am but yeah i maintain that i maintain that crazy in love is probably one of the top five pop songs of the past 25 years is that your second website that you have yeah if you start a music website yeah i I maintain that (laughs) i maintain everything went downhill after 2003.com that's just Leeds united though (laughs) that could be your football website look do you mind Uh, i but it, I mean, if you if you have listeners across across the pond who may not realise that this is what a, that this is what a, an accent from Yorkshire sounds like <laughs> in the north of England, uh, but specifically, I, I am I am from a family who are not really interested in football, but the ones who are were sort of raised as Leeds United fans. So um, any anything about you know. 2003 and you know the difficult events of the early 2000s um is you know <laughs> is always gonna you know cast a stain uh when i when i think about the game i'm not remotely interested a, a peter ridsdale shaped stain yeah like it's champions league semi-finals <laughs> i mean i have yeah. i have basically no opinions about football in the world apart from the fact that leeds united should never have sacked david o'leary <laughs> it was downhill from there <laughs> That's literally my uh, o- that's literally my only dearly held like football opinion. So as we know, you you started watching wrestling on on Sky One and then sort of got back into it um, after after we got together. What was your uh, first Pearl match? My first Pearl match was um, for my money still probably one of the one of the best matches of all time and certainly one of the best matches of the nineties. Um, it was a steel cage match between Bull Nakano, everybody's favourite. Oh of anything ever, who is an absolute queen, and the dangerous queen, Akira Hokuto, who are basically, at any given moment, they are two of my top five wrestlers of all time, so it made a bit of an impression on me. But it was it was immediately a response to the fact that I'd been watching something absolutely diabolical in about 20... It was about 2013. Yeah. On, um, it was something on Raw or SmackDown or a pay-per-view, and it was just so awful. I was getting really depressed about <laughs> women's wrestling in general. It was just like... Uh, and it was actually, you know, the guy I'm sat next to right now who honestly turned around and was like, I know what will make you feel better. 
and showed me his cage match between Paul Meccano and Akira Hokuto, which is messy as shit and was incredible and restored my faith in, you know, what could be done with women's wrestling. Yeah, like, I didn't know much about Joshi at the time. Like, you know what it was? It was when uh, the Give Divas a hash, uh, a Chance hashtag started. I think it was. Uh, give Divas a hash is was... a whole completely different thing in Glasgow. Give Divas a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but, like... Probably against the wellness policy. Um, but, like, yeah, it was around about that time. And I didn't know much about Joshi at the time, either. I was just like, oh, I'll go and, like, have a look at what was good. And I'd vaguely heard of Bull Nakano and uh, Kira Hokuto I wasn't yeah. um, familiar with. And then we just took that match on. Like, it is so violent. Oh, yeah. It's not very long, either. It's only, like, 10, 12 minutes. It's a good job it's not that yeah. violent. Because, <laughs> or a good job it's not no. that long, rather, because it's so violent. I'm genuinely worried what that match would have been like if it had extended over half an hour. That have been getting stretched yeah. out and not in kayfabe. Yeah, well, it's got it's got yeah. two bumps from the top of the cage. Um, it's got um, <laughs> Bornicano did a um, leg drop off the top of the cage, a bump she took five times in her career, and each time she got paid a cash bonus for it because she's basically just going right on a tailbone from a height of uh, like well, fifteen uh, feet. More What's that, incredible about that? that, that is, yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm. I'm over the moon that we are coming back to Bolnacano. This was a cracking show for you guys to choose. But my favourite thing about yeah. that, if I remember correctly, this is also the one where she does the leg drop off the top of the cage, and then when she lands, she bounces and then ends up landing on her cheek. <laughs> well, it is the coolest yeah. shit. It's incredible. Uh, that, that, that's no, that's the uh, that's the one against Arja Kong where they stab each other with scissors. Uh, um, oh, the, the one against yeah, Hokuto, yeah. she she misses the leg drop, and then Hokuto goes up top and does one of those. You know that one that missile drop kick Japanese wrestlers often do when they take the bump on their yeah. backs instead of their fronts. Yeah. She did one of those yeah, from the top God. of the cage, and then and then she was presumably hurting like hell, and then just got up and was like, nope, and then he just climbs out the cage, <laughs> and like that's it's one of the <laughs> maddest things I've ever seen in, in in my life. And that was like where our sort of Japanese women's wrestling watching sort of originated from really yeah and i would say it's been going pretty well since then because what? you know uh, as as sad as i was to see to see carrie hojo leave stardom uh, i think that while i am skeptical of wwe being able to handle more than one japanese woman at a time i you know i do genuinely think that there is potential for her to do great things and stardom uh, as depleted as it might look at the minute actually has potential to, to go to really good places in the future as well. So I think Joshi, as it stands, is in a really good place. And I think that that's why something like this is a, a nice way to go back and kind of look at how it's developed over the years and kind mm. of, you know, we're, we're going to see people, uh, we're going to see people sort of later on in this show without whom none of this would have happened. You know, people like Jaguar yeah. Yakota, who goes on to be one of the greatest, probably the greatest and most important trainer of all time as well um so yeah. this is exactly yeah, like, the kind of show that really leads in quite nicely with that yeah as well. i mean as much as wwe yeah. would like you to believe that women's wrestling only got good like two years ago um i mean yeah. looking looking back at japan the show we're going to review is from um august the 22nd 1985 and mm. it's just just goes to over 30 years ago female wrestlers in japan were doing some yeah. of the most incredible matches um, that still hold mm. up today. Um, before we get to the show, um, I just wanted to say if you could, because um, AJW, I think it's fair to say, is your favourite promotion of all time. Because it's the best. Well, yes, yes. So um, <laughs> would you be able to just give us a, a flavour of the uh, the history of the promotion? I thought you'd never ask. We have definitely not pre-prepared 
Anything is just all I, off the top. You know what? I definitely don't have yeah. a whole page of notes in front of me right here. So, <laughs> um, it is one of those unfortunate stories where, as much as we, we want to get to Japan, but we, we briefly kind of need to go back and do a bit of a recap of what's happening in the 1950s in the US, because that's where so much of this comes from. So, probably the single most important person in the history of women's wrestling is a woman called Mildred Burke, who we're not going to go into too much detail about right now, but essentially she's she's a god in wrestling terms. And, you know, I'd like to go back and talk a bit more about her in the future, but essentially um, she's had a really nasty divorce from her dickhead husband, the promoter Billy Wolf. Um, and oh, he, what a scumbag. Yeah, <laughs> God. Seriously. One day, maybe, oh. maybe when I've got my own podcast, I can do an entire episode about how much of a scumbag Billy a... Wolf is. Oh. Um, Just a yeah. Oh, yeah, vile so human being. Yeah, so he's a terrible person. Um, but the important thing is that he is a promoter who has got a real stranglehold on the NWA, as it starts at the time, the National Wrestling Alliance. And as a result, he's making it very difficult for Mildred Burke in particular, but also the the women that she trained who then stayed loyal to her after they parted ways, making it really difficult for them to find work in the US. Um, so she sets up a tour in Japan in November 1954, um, including people like um, Gloria Baratini and a, a certain woman called Johnny Mae Young, who I think might have had a career yeah. somewhere along the line. Um, so this is November 1954. Just to remind you how old Mae Young was by the time she was giving birth to her hand. 15-year poet at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she was. It's incredible. So... But for some for some okay. reason that I haven't quite been able to pin down, um, this had actually been a really heavily promoted tour beforehand. It was a, a newspaper corporation had got behind it and started sponsoring it. So it was really well built beforehand, which means that these women land at the airport and they're greeted by a crowd of thousands. Like It's genuinely that big of a deal. And it gets a lot of interest from the, the public and, and from the press as well. So even though the shows are mostly taking place on US airbases, they're actually getting enough interest that Nippon TV picks this up and then puts it on the telly. Yeah. So they get this huge exposure. And essentially, this kicks off an interest in women's wrestling in Japan, and a lot of different companies emerge out of it. Um, so if, you know, not long after this, um, the All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling Organization is set up as a way of kind of regulating all of these new companies and, and new shows mm -hmm. that kick off. Um, it's not massively effective, and a lot of these companies are kind of going off doing their own thing, and there's not really a guiding vision that's actually promoting the sport and developing it. Um, probably up until about 1967, when we come across um, the Matsunaga brothers, who are uh, Toshikuni, Kenji, Kunimata, and our hero of the hour, Takashi Matsunaga, um, who are all former wrestlers themselves and decide that they're actually going to invest in this. Um, and they set up the All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling Corporation, or as we know it now, AJW. Um, it, they set up a training school, which soon becomes known for being a really kind of heavy training school. So on the one hand, yes, it's quite harsh, but, you know, they, they, they whip you into shape really quickly and then... Yeah. You know, a few years later, you've got, even as far as the 80s, you've got people like Leilani Kai who are going to um, Japan and then training in the dojo with the women there and saying, I thought yeah. I knew how to wrestle, but 
the, the dojos in Japan start training you where the American ones end. So you've already got this yeah, really yeah. this really heavy sort of level of training where they are they're developing them to be workhorses by that point. It's not mm. always the case a little bit earlier on. Um, so when you get to 1968, um, the first AJW show actually takes place in, in June, and the tour's popular enough that the Fuji Network picks it up for TV, so they start getting this TV exposure that lasts for you know a good 40 years. Um, mm. Takashi Matsunaga gets in touch with uh, Vincent J. McMahon and is like, I, I, need a, I need a bit of help. So Vince, Vince Sr. sends another complete scumbag, the fabulous Moolah, who, um, again, oh. maybe one day, considering the fact that you can say what you like against the dead, um, I have absolutely no problem with one day I would like to do a podcast where we just talk about terrible things that the fabulous Moolah supposed to We don't have to use our usual allegedly uh, tips. <laughs> no. I'll put no. it in anyway, just to make sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, I mean... The only issue with a podcast like that would be that it would have to be about 10 episodes long. So true, like to, true. And, you know, to, it, it, it takes... To fit in the, like, you know... Yeah, and to be fair, shit. it takes you guys long enough to get one show ready at a time, so let's not go over the top. We've only been here 10 minutes, turns in fucking shade. Give me time, <laughs> guys. Give a, me time. I a podcast on why Sarah's being absolutely fucking shady. <laughs> You know what? I'm just going to direct all of my shade at the fabulous Moolah um, because it's deserved. Um, so one useful thing that she does do, she brings some of her some of her girls over and then wrestles with some of the Japanese women. Um, the tour is not as financially successful as Mildred Burke's was in 1954. One thing she does do, however, is Moolah drops the belt to Yuki Kotomoe while she's there and then regains it on the way back. But in the meantime, that actually serves to make probably one of the first bona fide Japanese wrestling stars um, so even though you know she wasn't really that heavily involved in, in in Japanese wrestling and all of the credit really needs to go to Mildred Burke you know Moolah's played a role there as well um, but eventually um, Takashi Matsunaga goes back to Mildred Burke um, knowing that that's where so much of the, the talent has come from already and by the time he goes back to her in 1968, um, because Fabulous Moolah has sort of built on Billy Wolf and working with Vince, she now basically runs most of the territories in the US in terms of the female performers. Yeah. Mildred Burke mm. basically can't find anywhere to work. She's, she's still training, but she doesn't really have a lot of work for any of her performers. And she's basically surviving on sort of selling old footage of her own matches. Um, so she sees this as an option to get some work for some of her girls and... She's training in Reseda, California, so don't let PWG tell you that, you know, they're the only good wrestling that's happened in that particular neck of the woods. Um, Some would argue there is, that they aren't even good wrestling. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just imagining Mildred Burke, like, booking a match, and she's like, right, right, kid, I've got the best idea. You're going to do not one, not two, but three reverse hurricanes in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the next match, we're going to have the exact same spot, but... Different people. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair, M Mildred Burke, I don't think, would ever have done a reverse Rana, which therefore probably makes her one of your favourite wrestlers of all time by default, Dan. So. Yeah! <laughs> so the upshot of this is that in, in the late 60s, um, Matsunaga is working with, with Mildred Burke on getting more tours together and coordinating a, a, a bit more of a platform for them. The culmination of this happened in October 1970 when um, Aiko Kyo beat Marie Vanoni for Mildred Burke's former championship. The, the WWA 
so-called Red Belt, um, which becomes the top yeah. title in all Japan and stays that way for the whole mm. time that the company's running. Um, so we have that Red Belt, and then the secondary title in AJ Dub eventually becomes the All Pacific Championship, yeah. which we'll the see yellow, contested. Is that the yellow one? Uh, what, white, I think. Yeah, yeah it's the white belt. Oh, that, I'm thinking of the yeah, because it's why the belts in Stardom are the way they are, because they've, the top title is the Red uh, Belt yeah. and the second one is the White Belt. It's because of AJW. So its influence is still being felt today. So that's exactly what I was going to say. So basically the red belt, uh, then even though that belt is actually now sadly retired, it's so influential that really some of the, you know, the best known female Japanese performers now are still harking back to this in that sense. That's how big it was. So you can say that sort of by the end of 1970, you've got the foundations of what becomes the next sort of 30 years of AJW. What's interesting is seeing the way that it changes. So in the 70s, you basically have a situation where they're trying to develop a mainstream platform for these women, and they do it by kind of marketing them as pop singers at the same time as them actually being being wrestlers. Yeah. So, which is interesting. I'm sure that you guys are all very well aware of, you know, wrestlers and their sometimes ill-advised pop careers. Uh, but in these, are you saying Sap Time is not one of the greatest records yeah. ever put to vinyl? You know what, Bob Sap, please. <laughs> I'll not hear a bad word said against We Hate School by Terry Funk. <laughs> <laughs> but why can't the children play in school, Daniel? <laughs> I know! When I was watching the, the last main event, I watched it on Veal when I wasn't getting an advert for Dog Tricks t- <laughs> tutorials, right? Uh, because for some reason, if you try and watch a Veal video on, on your Wi-Fi, it just takes you to a link of a Dog Tricks tutorial and you can't get away from it and you can't watch a video. So, but when I watched it on Veal, they'd included them singing at the start. Oh. Linus Asuka and Jagger Yokota singing before it. It's mental. Before like. the match? Yeah, before the match, yeah. Yeah, they would do that. There would be shows that there would be shows where the musical performances were were intercut with the wrestling, and people would do that. Yeah, but was it? I want to say is was it a pre-tape of the song? Like they didn't come out. No, they didn't come. Yeah, out, they didn't come out, sing the song, it? fuck off to the back, get the wrestling gear on, and come out again. But I see when I was reading a review for the the AGW Classics, um, the tape of this, they said that in the set in the Gaio Masami match, apparently they came out and sang in that. Bloody hell. I don't recollect this. But yeah, apparently they came out and sang as well. Like, but they, they, this was in this review. To be fair, this was like 13 years yeah. ago. So, I mean, you'd probably do Lally. But yeah, um, yeah like, I, I don't know. I was like, where the fuck did I miss this? Like, yeah. Well, this is one of the really interesting things about, about AJW is that, to be fair, it works. And it gets them this absolutely huge mainstream appeal. So you're at a point in, you know, the 70s and into the early 80s. You've got hundreds or you know sometimes thousands of youngish girls applying every year and then being put through their their paces eventually you know the best ones then being trained but you know you can argue how much of that was the interest in the wrestling and how much of that was because they'd initially been brought in by you know all of the excitement of you get to be a pop star as well i mean in the in the 70s you've got um Probably one of the best known examples was the the beauty pair who are uh, Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda. Uh, so they have hit records, and I've got written down in my peak that at their at their peak here, ratings were about fifteen million a week. Now, at the same time, that was more than Raw and Nitro combined, and close to what the NFL was doing at the time. So it really was that sort of scale. You you know, you're talking absolutely huge. Um, but there was a 
the corollary of that, I suppose, was that there were a lot of expectations on on the women about their performances, but also how they come across. You know, people people far more qualified than me have written about kind of how closely related Japanese female wrestling has been with things like idol culture as well. But for them, there was very much an emphasis on kind of being almost like your squeaky clean pop kind of figures there was a the basic rules were no alcohol no smoking and no boys mm. um, <laughs> sounds like hell to me like... <laughs> <laughs> i find it amazing they were they're all straight edge no casual sex no drug no drinks no smoking uh yeah like and it, it makes sense but as well as i must have been pretty controlling and a bit of a a nightmare scenario well, yeah it really does it does feel like there's a an element of having control over the entirety of your young life not least because you've got all these young women applying every year and the talent turnover is so high that actually they set the mandatory retirement age at 26 now this means i am a couple of weeks off turning 27 and i am over the hill at this point so the you know to me the idea of you know your career is effectively over at 26 is is mental but i suppose the the flip side of that is that a lot of people got to 26 and were like i don't really want to retire i'm going to go off and set up my own company mm. so you get actually got sort of offshoot promotions that would start springing up all over the place as well interesting fact um the kazakhstan premier league have a similar rule but it's 30 instead of 26 is that <laughs> seriously did they go and set up like yeah. rebel football it's like it's not like there's a sunday league springing up all over kazakhstan <laughs> Yeah, so we'll be dancing in the streets of Almaty tonight. <laughs> the, 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 the interesting thing is actually about, like, just to give you an, uh, an impression of how big the beauty pair were, hmm. um, wrestling in terms of live gates, the 90s was when it was, they were getting monster live gates, like, you know, 40, 50, 60,000, including big AJW shows at the Tokyo Dome. Uh, in the 70s, wrestling's popularity was still recovering a little bit from the fallout from the uh, gangland murder of Rikidos and spoilers for the novel, and um, the subsequent exposure of wrestling's ties with completely legitimate businessmen. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. And um, in the 1970s, allegedly, in the 1970s, there were only um, three wrestling shows that sold out Budokan Hall all decade. And... One of them was uh, in 1976. It wasn't actually a wrestling show at all. It was the notorious um, Muhammad Ali, Antonio Inoki, Proto MMA fight. So that was one of them. The second one was a joint All Japan and New Japan show um, featuring a main event of um, the BI Cannon, which was the tag team of Giant Barber and Antonio Inoki, teaming up for the first time in about five years since the JWA closed against uh, Tiger Jeet Singh and Abdullah the Butcher. So that was the second one that sold Budokan Hall out. Mm-hmm. And the third one was Maki Sato versus, uh, sorry, Maki Ueda versus Jackie Sato yeah. for the WWWA Championship one-hour draw. Uh, AJW show, uh, 19 and 20, I think they were at the time. Mm-hmm. So you've got Madness. these 19 and 20-year-old women, one of only three wrestling matches, and really only two wrestling matches, to have sold out Budokan Hall in that decade. And that really was one of the few cases of, you know, please take note of WWE. If you're going to split up a tag team, do it at the right oh, time for the right I, reason. I, I, I say because this all the they time. have been yeah, so big. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, you'll see the same thing. We're gonna um, we're gonna talk about um, Chikas and Agaya and um, Lioness Asuka at various points later on. But by the time they eventually split, they tagged together from 1983 to 1989, mm. right? And 
When eventually they had a title match in 1989, it drew something insane like 13,000 people, which is more than you get to, you know, a lot of the WWE pay-per-views where, yeah. they're, where they're talking about we filled this arena, but how many people did we have to give free yeah, tickets to yeah, get it that yeah. way? You know, yeah. that happens quite often yeah. now. Um, but this was... that. I mean, that was by the end of the, the 1980s, by which point the, the Crush Gals have already been one of the most popular tag teams Ever. So they've got their high charting singles and they perform big concerts at the same time as wrestling. Like they are absolutely yeah. massive stars. And what's interesting about AJW is that eventually the, the work rate, I suppose, like the actual quality of the wrestling goes up through all of this time. So when the, when the beauty pair eventually wrestled each other, the quality of the match was not anything like what mm. it was, say, 10 years later when Chigasa and, and Linus Asuka mm. wrestle each other. Mm. But as the sorry, I was going to mention just before you go on about Budokan, about like the the significance of Budokan. It's still like to this day, it's still a really, really, really cult. It's a cultural icon in, yeah. in Japan, really. Like maybe as much as the Tokyo Dome, because I mean, you get like, like lots of bands, so like live Budokan albums, like didn't Deep Purple do one? Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, uh, Bob um, Dylan did one famously as well. Like uh, Mr. Big, Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick did one. Yeah, yeah. Cheap trick. Cheap yeah. trick. Fucking hell. But yeah, like, all these, like, around about the 70s, 80s, you were getting lots and lots of live albums from Budokan. Yeah. Even Dream Theater have done a live album from Budokan. Cheap trick and their uh, special version of the song Surrender and then spend seven years under American occupation. <laughs> <laughs> oh. This one's going out to General MacArthur. So, anyway. Let's <laughs> <laughs> leave General MacArthur Park. Anyway, let's go. Back to the wrestling, guys. <laughs> we need someone like that, like you on the podcast, to like make us do that. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say we, we need oh, someone God. like General MacArthur to whip us into shape. <laughs> you know what you do in your own time is your true. own business. You'd like that, Daniel, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> now, come on, son. Hold that whip, Steady. <laughs> anyway, carry on. It's terrible. I would, I would, I would never shag a general. <laughs> Anyway, by the time we get to like the mid nineteen eighties, this this formula that's been established is something that's already quite well entrenched, but it's something that has basically seen a good fifteen years of pretty much constant growth. And what's incredible about this is I got into a bit of a spat on Twitter at some point last year with a basically a dickhead who was a senior writer on um, on another fine online publication which we're not going to go into here who described wrestling as being crass male power theater and that there was no evidence that wwe was actually trying to make inroads with 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 female fans you know you can tell me all you want that wrestling is such a you know a heavily gendered crass male power theater 30 years ago these people were proving that that is fucking bullshit i'm sorry but you know you're listening to this and you know for for people who are actually watching the matches, what's incredible about listening to these crowds and hearing the way that they chant, they're all young yeah. women. Yeah. It's yeah. really that, it's yeah. really high pitched. It sounds like the kind of chanting that I would expect to have heard at like a Taylor Swift concert. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Genuinely. Yeah. It feels like it's that sort of atmosphere yeah. for this it show. Is. And you know, you'll you'll never tell me that wrestling is somehow inherently masculine because in the you know, 
years before I was bloody born, we have actually got living proof here that, you know, if you if you market your product at women and give them characters that they are interested in and that they are invested in, this is the kind of mad business that you can do and this is the yeah. kind of money that you can make. So by the time we get to this show here, we are pretty much at the peak of the mainstream success that AJW has. Mm. And to me, it's proof of concept for anybody who is actually trying to invest in women's wrestling today. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the thing about the crowd is, firstly, there was a huge amount of female fans because they provided some great role models for young women in Japan. Another point about it is that there was still a, amongst the hardcore male wrestling fans, there was still a stigma attached to AJW based on the fact it had started out as this sort of variety show and it was to do with uh, pop music as well as wrestling. You know, AJW's one-hour TV show, it would be, they'd do a song and then they'd have a match then they do a song and then another match and then another song. So it was kind of like music yeah. sort of interspersed with wrestling. Like the, the Osmonds. I mean, to be fair... <laughs> To be fair, I watched Top of the Pops every week religiously when I was a kid, and I feel like maybe if that had had more wrestling in it, maybe it would have survived for longer, you know? <laughs> more yeah, more, more like... wrestling, less pedophiles, and it would have been fucking, you know, <laughs> plain sailing for Top of the Pops. I would like Pops. to say for the record... Allegedly. For the record, I was very much more belonging to the Jamie Feakston and Fern Cotton era of Top of the Pops. Oh, more Jamie Feakston. See, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit older, so I, I got the, the last little um, sort of like wafer-thin uh, uh, sort of um, selection of, um, well... Kitty fiddlers. Anyway, um, let's um, move this one on. Uh, Moving on. The yeah, like the the uh, I mean the thing about this um, the um, a lot of the male wrestling fans uh, they which is you know entirely a pity for them wouldn't have been seen dead at one of these shows because they still thought of it as oh like it's it's more about the pop music and the wrestling isn't really that good um not not really knowing that actually yeah they are still doing the the hit singles and stuff like that but the wrestling has got really really good like um dave Meltzer, who had uh, frequented quite a lot of these ajw shows in the 80s where he'd be a, one of maybe a dozen blokes yeah. in the crowd he was he was telling anyone who would listen like no seriously this is some of if not the best wrestling in the world and actually uh, Terry Funk was a yeah. uh, big advocate of um, AJW saying that he was he was saying the top workers in AJW they're as good as anyone in the world yeah yeah so there wasn't uh, Melzer at the big wrestling universal he's got a t-shirt which he has been seen to wear at uh, PWG yeah. yeah he's been for um, he he wasn't at he wasn't at this one, but um, he had been to like a lot of the big shows, like the Minami show, the Toshio Yamada hair versus hair match, which I think he said is the best one he's ever seen live. I think he was at uh, the I think he was at Dream Slam for the Hokuto Kandori uh, mm. one, like the really famous one. So like um, you know, um, but like I mean, he would be really firstly as a gaijin in the minority, but also just as a man in general, it was such a, a female-dominated audience. And when we actually get into these matches, if you watch them back, yeah, the, the crowd sound is unlike anything you will hear nowadays. I think I've actually read somewhere Meltzer saying that it was, you know, he's never experienced anything like the atmosphere when people were rooting for Chigusa Nagaya. Yeah. Like, it's oh, genuinely, yeah. it's not, nothing's matched it yeah. since. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and that's, that's something we'll get to when we get to the match. It's, it's an interesting turnaround as well, um, in the sense that these days, modern Joshi... It's pretty much like um, I think majority male audience um, again now from stardom certainly yeah, is yeah like um, yeah yeah I don't always think that's the case though because when you look at places like Sendai Girls mm. actually when I was what I was watching um, a, a Chihiro Hashimoto match quite recently and 
again, I'm I'm purely going on what I can hear from mm. the crowd and the chanting, but it does it sounds like there are more female fans there as well. So I don't know whether it's just you know the way that the business has yeah. developed and that you know certain certain people who have certain platforms have attracted specific audiences. Yeah, I think it's like stardom is very much more implicated with idol culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you get you get like a, a more male dominated audience yeah. for that, whereas like. You know, any promotion run by Mako Satomura is not yeah. necessarily um, going to be uh, like that. Um, so, yeah, um, AJW would, of course, go on to, um, you know, some, some would argue even greater things in the 90s. But um, for our purposes, we've got we've got our history up until this point. Yeah, yeah. So um, well, if it's all right with uh, you guys, we'll talk about the matches. But first, as a little interlude... Um, uh, a a segment we like to call uh, David's Adventures in Pur. So, um, David, making sure not to use any phrases like last weekend or anything with a definitive amount of time because this is meant to be going out in September all being well and we just have to edit them out. David, being as vague as, as you possibly can about chronology, um, tell us what uh, what you've done recently. Well, once upon a time... <laughs> <laughs> I went Don't to... mention time at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's all of our enemy. <laughs> it's, it's all of our enemy. Um, yes, once upon a time, I went to the British J-Cup in London. Um, and, and uh, yeah, it was in Walthamstow with Jushin Liger there. Now, I've he is my top three wrestlers ever. It's him, Onita, and Sting. Those are the three for me. Those are the three guys. And I've seen Sting. I've seen him at the Impact Zone. But what was I doing there? I don't know. <laughs> uh, preempting it, preempting it, um, and like I'm not going, I'm not going to see Anita unless I go to that mental CCW show in Delaware and watch him get blown up in the field. But apart from that, I'm probably not seeing Anita. But Liger was Liger was the one I wanted to tick off. So he went to the British J Cup. Um, and I went with um, our friend Jackson. Well, I say I went with our friend Jackson. I went to the venue with our friend Jackson, and he got called into work 15 minutes before we went in. Oh. And he was half he was half cut when he went into work. But um, I'd brought him to potato scones, and he went and ate six of them of tomato sauce. They shouldn't have, they shouldn't have nurseries open that late at night anyway. It's a disgrace. Like... <laughs> I know, man. That wasn't meant to be. Um, oh, that sounded worse than it. Never mind. Like... <laughs> I meant because he was he drunk. He shouldn't be in a hot... Go out to the top of the pot. I know, again. I meant because he was drunk, but because of my previous joke about nonsense, I've, yeah, it's, I've fucked it, so carry on. He, he shouldn't be working in hospital as a nurse, saving lives yeah. that late at night. Better. I think that's what you meant. Better. <laughs> so if we, if we, did, if we um, did a comedy show, we'd have to write it like with a team like the Simpsons, because otherwise I can't be left alone on my own. I'm like Vince Russo. Like, I need someone to tell me that, <laughs> that I've gone too far. Yeah, actually, yeah, actually, you're starting to look a bit like him. Oh, now. fuck off! <laughs> you know what? If you need someone to be your Conan O'Brien in your Simpsons-esque writing room, I'm sure that we can find somebody who is willing to stage an yeah. intervention for was, you guys. I, you I was thinking more like a kind of Hank figure from Larry Sanders, but uh, like. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, guys, you're ruining David's sorry, adventures in Puro. <laughs> It's Sorry, the only time I never want to, to get this. in the way of Jushin Liger. Exactly. Well, it's always George's adventures. I want to have an adventure every once in a while. Um, but, yeah, so we went to... It was a Walthamstow Assembly Hall. It was an eight-man eight tournament. It was Jushin Liger, uh, Tiger Mask. Tiger Mask was actually amazing. Like, I, Tiger Mask really has a, a propensity for not moving his arse and phoning <laughs> it in all the time. 
But he was actually he was he was motivated and he had a really great match with um, Marty Skrull. He had a really really good match. Then Jushin Liger came out and uh, you're facing Josh Bodum um, and we were with Alex from the the Footstomp Facebook group that we run um, and he's a big Josh Bodum fan and he was the only Josh Bodum fan I think at that entire show because he's a prick and no one likes him. Um, jo- Josh, Josh Bodum, Bodum, not Alex. Josh Bodum, not Alex. Alex is Alex is lovely. Love you, Alex. But um, yeah, so like he came out and then got squashed by Lager in two and a half minutes. I lost my fucking mind. I was I was gone by this point. I couldn't believe it, and I thought, well, that's great. I got to see Lager win. He'll get beaten in the final, but he'll be fine. Like you know, like I've I seen him win. I'm quite happy with that. No, it, it didn't work out like that because he went on to win the whole tournament and I was out my seat and I'd fucking lost it by the end. I was I was that prick you see in the terraces. You know when you you know when you used to you go to the football and you would always be that guy. What <laughs> yeah. was what was the guy that you knew? The guy you had the song about? Oh, um, what was and, his and name? Enthusiastic man. Enthusiastic man, enthusiastic man. He shouts, he screams, he has tight jeans, enthusiastic man. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. <laughs> I was I was enthusiastic man for fishing Liger. Because, like, I, I just turned into that prick that you see at every SPFL game and you hear him over the mic going, For fuck's sake, what is Give it! Give it! Give I it! Totally, yes! No! Fucking! Oh, yeah, no, like, honestly, if you if you want um, if you want a good laugh, you should go on to New Japan World and watch the J-Cup, um, particularly the final, and try and spot me losing my fucking head <laughs> when Jushin Liger won. Because the, the, the match has started out where basically Jushin Liger, every time he went into the ring, he was drop-kicked out. So every time he tried to climb back in, he was just kicked in the head and went back down. So he spent like 20 minutes lying about, doing nothing. And then uh, Skrull eliminated the other two. It was a great spot where he, he whacked Liger with an umbrella and then threw it at Osprey. And then Kushida got up and seen Osprey with the umbrella and Skrull just went, he disrespected a legend. He battered him with an umbrella. What a kick, what a prick. And then Kushida started beating the shit out of Osprey. And then for the next 10 minutes, it was Skrull going, come on, we'll beat him together. We'll beat him up together. He disrespected Liger. Who would do that? And then, this, and then at the end, Liger got up. Um, he was the last one left with a skull, and he got up onto the ring, and oh my god, it was it was just unbelievable. I I, you know, like uh, it's my number one match of the year, and it, to be other people, it's still a really good match watching it, you know, on video. But being there yeah. when it happened, man, it was just un. I, I, yeah, I totally lost it. I was I was a total, you know, I was nine years old again, and as I've said many times on here. All I want from wrestling is to make me feel nine years old again. And it made me feel nine years old. It was everything I wanted. So I'm, I was so happy. And then afterwards, I met Kid Lycos. Um, and because Jackson, like Kid Lycos, is his favourite guy in RevPro, I went up to him and said, Oh, Lycos, go over here. <laughs> and he took a, took a Facebook video um, to say, saying hello to Jackson, saying he's sorry that he missed him, but he hopes he'll see him next time. Yeah. And he, he like, I think Jackson nearly wept when he saw it. Yeah. Man, he was so happy. It was so good. But yeah, and probably very, very drunk. <laughs> probably very, very drunk. Yeah, I mean, he was he was he was working in the pub um, at that time, but he was still he was still just giving me pints. He was just like, there you go. When I got back, he just had like, a fresh pint for me for free and all that. I am quite happy that um, he didn't get really bent and lose his keys because Jackson I know you're listening and Jackson you know what that happened um, so I'm quite glad that we were able to get home 
But yeah, fat, uh, yeah I stayed with him. It was a great, great fun. We went to Hackney Marshes on Sunday morning, uh, watched some proper football. Uh, and yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully the next time I go to London in like 6,000 years, yeah. um, it'll be great as well. Yeah. I'm really, really glad that you got to see Jushin Liger live because I, oh, man. I love Jushin Liger. And I, I think the fact that I think it's a, a real testament to, you know, the way that he's kind of handled the ageing process, I suppose, in that he's adapted his style to the point where I bloody love Jushin Liger, and I have probably seen maybe 20% as much of his mid ninety stuff as I have of the things that he's done sort of in the last five years or so. Like, oh. I really, it's almost entirely on the basis of his most recent work that I have kind of looked at Jushin Liger and gone... He's an adorable, happy little goblin man, and he's an amazing wrestler, and I love him so, so much. There's four and people. There's four people that I track every single match that comes out, and it's Liger, it's Ellie Park, Black Terry. it's Black Terry, yeah, yeah. and it's Anita, yeah. and like every every single time. That's why I love the best in Super Juniors is that you're guaranteed like seven Jushin Liger singles matches, and I'm like, it keeps me going for the whole year. So I'm sure that we were both like equally sad when uh, like uh, announced that this was going to be his last best of the super juniors. You see, I really he said that last year. He said last year that was his last one, like oh, 2016. Did he? Yeah, so I think he's talking oh, shit. He'll get the next year. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, he. Cause... I think him. I think him winning the British Jacob makes up for him winning like one fucking match in the best of the super juniors, and it was against Tai Chi. <laughs> of, <laughs> I've not seen it yet, but I it sounds like a pure hook, to be honest, that Tai Chi match. Oh um, yeah, no, it was an amazing match. It's like you're just like, oh come on, you've got to get this one win <laughs> win against this little fucking cunt. Like, <laughs> the thing is, I'm not normally one to kind of shit on New Japan booking because I generally think that New Japan's booking is, you know, relatively sound. But uh, although I'm sure that Dan would disagree with that, <laughs> considering the fact that Kenny Omega got title matches, uh, <laughs> you know, I. That was a that was a, I, that was I, like a, a a sonic representation of my opinions on Kenny Omega. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I respect him. Um, I, oh, think I, like, I, I respect him, like in the sense that I respect, like you know, anyone as like a basic human being. I suppose, like, uh, well, not anyone. <laughs> anyone who's not fash, basically. Yeah, anyone who's not like fash <laughs> or plays for United or wears Crocs, he's fine. Like, really. Um, I mean, I'm I'm glad that we've got I'm glad that we've got that basic level of understanding yeah, there at yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. Well, I but so I'm not normally one who complains about about New Japan booking, but I think if this was indeed Liger's last Best of the Super Juniors, I do not understand how they managed to piss it away by make it by having him lose six matches and then win one at the end. That was the perfect kind of. Can he do it one last time? That would have been the absolute perfect way for him to go out. Yeah. So actually, if this if this turns out to not really be his last best of the Super Juniors, I'm happier about that because we've still got a chance at actually doing his retirement properly. And I do think that his last best of the Super Juniors will end up being part of his retirement tour. Yeah, like everyone was saying, like uh, Ricky Choshu, 1996, like the... Uh, the sentimental miracle veteran run. Everyone was saying Choshu ninety six, Choshu ninety six. Turn out being more like Choshu ninety nine one. Well, do you remember Tenzan last year in the G one? Oh yeah, yeah exactly. Kojima exactly had Kojima gave up his spot in the G one so he could have one last run, and he just get fucking minced every night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but by 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 the time this is released, we'll probably have had the same with Eugene Nagata as well. <laughs> We'll probably have the same with fucking Shotanaka by the time we get this. 
Fantastic. Okay, so um, thank you very much, David. So no getting into the matches, this was a um, Budokan Hall, the venue that we... Um, yeah, everyone get your notes at the ready. Budokan Hall, the venue we uh, mentioned earlier. This was the venue for this show. A Around about, uh, I think, 16,000 uh, um, seater sold out for this show. So again, very impressive. Um, lineup of just the five matches... And the first two were not very long, but the first three were very substantial. Uh, the first match on the show, um, it doesn't appear like there's any extant footage of it. It was a tag match between uh, the team of Mika Kamatsu and Yumi Ogura against Jumbo Hoi and Kazue Nagahori. Um, I obviously, we're never going to see this match. I can't even remember who wins. So moving on, <laughs> the second match on the show. Four um, stars. You, Four, st- four stars, it, solid six, fundamentals. Six Fuck it, like we're never going to see it. But, <laughs> you know. that, that's the brave new world yeah. we're living it's in the now. Bright heart, it's the Bright Heart Tom McGee of this oh, podcast. It's the fucking, it's the fucking, it's the fucking Baba, like R- Roger Lyon of this fucking. <laughs> the um, the uh, yeah. So the the, uh, the second match on the show, um, you can watch in clipped form on I th- I want to say episode seven yep. of uh, AJW yep. Classics. Yeah, seven. Um, and when I say in clipped form, I mean you get like three and a half minutes out of the five. Yeah. So um, this w- is um, Yukari Omori, who uh, would go on to win the WWWA uh, championship later in the 80s, certainly not some scrub, against uh, Monster Ripper. Now, um, Monster Ripper, if you're uh, a WWF fan and you were watching in the 90s, you might know Monster Ripper for, uh, unfortunately, the wrong reasons, because she wrestled there under the gimmick of Bertha Fay. Now, <laughs> yeah, can we can we just take a second to talk about this? Please, please do. Um, okay, so Rhonda Singh, Bertha Fay, Monster Ripper. Without this woman, it would be really difficult to lay any sort of trail of precedence leading up to the likes of Karma and eventually to people like Nia Jax. She is absolutely astonishing. Now her her weight sort of fluctuated a lot throughout her career and in this match she's nowhere close to being at her biggest at one point sort of near the end of her career she was knocking on for 300 pounds actually which kind of puts her a little bit on the heavier side of Nia Jax um but who is I think about 270 yeah somewhere around about that and so but the thing is Monster Ripper could wrestle Ron, and, and Rhonda Singh definitely could wrestle. She was a she was a Canadian by birth and ended up over there. And they actually knew how to handle bigger women in oh, Japan. Yeah. Uh, by this point, yeah, it's kind of from from the seventies onwards. They'd sort of established this dynamic of having you sort of quite young, sort of stereotypically attractive, quite delicate looking young, younger girls who would be playing these kind of baby faces with lots of hope spots against women who tended to be a little bit bigger if they were the heels and potentially a little bit older as well um, and they they nailed that by this point so when monster ripper comes in they actually really know how to use her and they uh, and this match is absolutely you know i think that it's not necessarily the best example of everything that she could do but it's a you know it's a good enough match of you know, babyface largely overpowered by this monster, monster heel, I suppose. And I actually think that they handle it really well because the heat that she gets is incredible and she's not getting the kind of fat-shaming shit that she would get a few years later in the WWF. No, no. and it's, it's even more bizarre when uh, the way she was handled in the WWF when you consider they had hit on this formula, which was um, Alundra Blaze, a.k.a. Medusa, 
um, who was the ace of their women's division. And the formula was that they would send in a much larger wrestler against her. Uh, it was Borna Kano in 1994 and uh, Arja Kong in 1995. And of course, Joey Lawler was making jokes about sushi and all the rest of it on uh, on commentary. But they were presented as you know, bigger women, but who were serious threats. Mm. And uh, the story was, can Alundra Blaze overcome this monster? And that led to some to some good matches and and some well told stories. But in between the uh, feuds with Borna Kano and Arja Kong, um, you had uh, Bertha Fay, who was uh, presented much more of a figure of fun. And it made absolutely no sense in terms of, firstly, in terms of producing actually watchable matches, but also because she could play the same sort of role that um, Arja Kong and Borna yeah, Kano yeah. played. Indeed, she had done in Japan. She was the, um, I mean, you had bigger wrestlers um, for, you know, uh, further back into AJW's history. I think the first uh, real notable super heavyweight was uh, someone called Jumbo Miyamoto, who in the uh, late 60s and early 70s was, uh, I think, WWA champion um, about four times, I think. But uh, Monster Ripper was the first one to not just be big, but be a monster really to be really fearsome with with the gear and the, the the fright makeup and all the rest of it the presentation of the character really led into uh, a precursor to um some of the other notable heels such as Matsumoto and Bulbacano who we'll get onto yeah. later and also people like Anthony Tom. Exa- example being would be that the cracking afro that she had here like, that hair is yes. amazing. Oh, it's, it's, so it's, I actually think that's a really important part of building her as a mo- of building her as a monster because as I said this isn't the biggest that she was I and mean, in the grand scheme of things she wasn't like a particularly you know big imposing woman at this point it was only really the fact that she was against someone who was pretty tiny that made her look that intimidating but she wrestles like a bigger woman should wrestle yes and she knows how to make herself sort of feel and look bigger she's got the physicality about her that makes her intimidating and the big hair i think is actually just part of that kind of extending extending her body and extending the way that she carries herself so she walks in to the arena and you look at her and go oh shit you're scary yeah because like um yukari omori she's uh she's not like like skinny herself if you put her next to some of the other women on the show she would be more well built but she doesn't carry herself in the same being the baby face she doesn't carry herself in the same way that monster ripper does um in this match um i mean as far as the actual match itself there's not like a huge amount to it it's just a it's just a short but effective um, sort of, I guess, hoss fight. Yeah, uh, there, there, there is, though, um, uh, a, it does establish, if you've never seen uh, um, any Joshi match before ever, and you were to sort of then put this on as your first one, it does establish an important trope, though. Uh, and that is, um, much like, oddly, uh, UFC heavyweight Fabrizio Vadum seems um, uh, intent on doing it all, at the start of all of his fights now, um, The uh, whoever the baby face is in the situation, or whoever is the overpowered uh, wrestler, especially if they're a younger wrestler, comes straight out the gates with a drop kick. Like that's a that, that's a that's a yes. big thing. Yes. And often as many drop kicks as possible to try and like fell the the opponent. Uh, so that was something that I noticed right away, which is um you know a, a, a trope which continues throughout uh, Joshi pretty much from from this period onwards really. Um, and the other thing that I, w- I was I was going to say before, but I, I I didn't quite have the thought formulated correctly in my head. Um, I'll, I'll try and uh, be a bit more cogent about it now. Um, was that this match, uh, and um, indeed uh, most of the matches on this card, actually, maybe aside from the, the main event, but on the undercard, um, have this kind of odd vibe about them in some ways, because for someone like myself, who 
pretty much got into Joshi through um, through tape trading back in the day. Um, if anyone listened to um, the episode that we did, one of our first three episodes where uh, we were talking about the first pro matches that we saw, I spoke about a tape that I got called um, uh, Japan TV, uh, which had uh, Kawada on it um, uh, against um, uh, Suzaki and uh, you know the, the big dome match. But it, it was about six hours long. And it also had um, a shitload of Joshi on it as well. Um, and I remember thinking that, um, you know, I'd, I'd read Meltzer and that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, right, Joshi must be the kind of pinnacle of ultimate work rate, um, ultimate kind of technical uh, uh, wrestling, you know, a really fast uh, go-go-go style. And this match is, it, it's got elements of all those things, but it's pretty much like, uh, uh, you could see this match um, uh, between two sort of male wrestlers, maybe in a, in, in a US territory, um, you know, um, in, in maybe a few years earlier. Um, it's it's got enough about it, I think, to appeal to fans of that kind of thing as well. It isn't, you know, the um, the sort of really singular uh, go 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 style that you get from, like, say, someone like Manami Toyota that we'll we'll, we'll maybe talk about in another episode. Um, well, you know, so um, I I kind of put the note here that the the formula of the the match was Monster Ripper finding really creative ways to throw Mori about. That that yeah, was that's, pretty that's much it. the whole match. Yeah, just hard which is great. Yeah, chopping about. And that, as you mentioned about the comparison to Nia Jax, I kind of had the same comparison. I thought that that really is the archetype for a Nia Jax match. That's what she should be doing. Just like really creative yeah. ways to throw people yeah. about. I think that this this match, like I say, we we know from other matches that she had where she got more time, and you know she worked in plenty of other promotions as well. That you know Ronda saying Mon- Monster Ripper here could do more than that, but in this case. She knows what she's doing, and she knows yeah. how to make herself sound like uh, and appear like a big, imposing figure. And the best way to do that, especially when you've not got a lot of time, is just to find ways to ragdoll a smaller yeah, woman yeah. around. And that's yeah, and that's something that she does really well here. And the psychology of it is 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 pretty simple. It's your standard kind of David and Goliath kind of thing. But she was one of probably the best practitioners of it earlier mm. than anybody yeah. else. And it, which is kind of one of the reasons why I get so wound up seeing what happened to her, you know, a few years later when she went to the US because you see the same things happen with people like Luna Vachon, who also really, really deserved a better chance than they got. Because you can see here that actually they had the keys to something that could have been really special there and they could have had some really good matches with her yeah. later on. And this is kind of the this is the prototype for a lot of matches that we'll see later and it's weird that you know vince jr didn't see the value yeah. in it uh, say that please make me a promise and never watch the wcw women's division in 1999 with ronda singing it because oh god you, you will not like that every match is about a minute and a half and i have very little knowledge of wcw in that period and i have no, no intention you'll, you'll, of going no, don't worry it's okay <laughs> it's like it's I, yeah. I in this match um i enjoyed the i enjoyed the ragdolling but what i also enjoyed was her um, just not even really doing anything technical, but just throwing her weight around as a sort of, I guess, a sort of blunt object. Yeah. It's like in yeah. the same way, David, that your wife always says, like, if wrestling was real, the big show would never lose. Yeah. Yes. It's, um, it, it's the same sort of thing. Like she's doing um, uh, Vader attacks, and actually, the finish to the match is, um, you know, like there's some the the back sent on. You know, there's yeah. some people who throw a back sent on, 
and it looks like ah oh, that, that that they kind of just brush him like um Eva Marie someone like that and um even uh, I think Demo Demo is a big guy but his back sent ons they're usually like quite safe quite gentle and then you've got some people who just jump up in the air and let the just let gravity yeah. do the rest people like um Hiromu Takahashi has got a uh, he's got a pretty stiff uh, back sent on uh, Monster Ripper has a stiff back sent on yeah. here and then the finish which I absolutely loved and this goes back to the whole big show thing uh, she wins with a um it's not even like a jumping big splash she just falls forward mm. And just presses down on Omori, and it's not like um, it's not like the blow knocks Omori out, and that's why a monster Ripper gets the three. She just can't get up. Basically, yeah, she's, she's just she's just pinning yeah. her, and Omori's trying to struggle, and she's like, "Go on, get the fuck off," and um, and she won't, and that's the finish. And you know, it's not that far off going into world of sport and watching Big Daddy win by sitting on someone. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not at all. Although, like you know. B- Probably be- better work rate than Big yeah. Daddy. I mean, that wouldn't take much, and I'm entirely no, with you. No, no, yeah. Like, um, but I think as well, like, uh, I was, I was gonna say, um, that, uh, what did we think about, um, like, we've spoken quite a lot there about, uh, like, Monster Ripper or, um, uh, her, her offense. Uh, what did you think about Omori at this stage of her career? I know it's incredibly, like, a bit harsh even to really sort of bring it up because it's a very short match, and she is, as we've said, she's basically been chucked around for most of it, but she does get some offense in. Um, so what what do you guys think about that? Because I've got I've got my own ideas yeah. about it, but I'll let you go first, and then I'll come. I noticed she um I've just got her in here. She does a bubble bomb yeah. at one point. Um, into like a toehold, but she then, then then afterwards like she gets caught in the toehold. Yeah, she? yeah, yeah. She transitioned into a yeah, body yeah. season. There's some like it's like. What I, I always love is uh, slams transitioned into submissions yes. or um, pin escapes transitioned into submissions where yeah. like, yes. someone gets their shoulder up and then they end up in a kimura or an yeah. armbar or something yeah, the, like that. The, the, the so yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. Like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, the, every fucking Carlo <laughs> Riley match. There was, um, there was the opposite of that in this where basically someone, they counted a pin on like an attempted Boston Crab. So he grabbed... They grabbed their legs and their shoulders were down, and the referee went up, oh, shoulders yeah. are down, one, two, and then uh, yeah, they, turned out, like, they turned into a Boston Crab. I'd never seen that before, and I was like, what, wait a minute, what, yeah. what? That's yeah. it's really strange. Yeah, because, like, you get that with um, Ric Flair won a fair few matches making people pass out in the figure yeah. four, so they're in the submission, but their shoulders were down. Mm. And so they do that spot a lot where they'd be like, oh no, I'm in so much pain, their shoulders are down, the rest starts kind of they're like, they're getting mm. the shoulder mm. up. Um, but I've never seen it with a Boston Crab. That was pretty inventive. Mm. I don't really have a huge amount to say about Omori in this match. Like, she did well in her role at being, like, taking a load of offense. Mm. Like, I'd like to see I'd like to see some more of her stuff when, like, when she has a run with the title. I'd like to see how much footage there is um, out there just to see what more she well, can how, do. How, how old was she here, roughly? Do we know? I don't know for sure, but if she was having a if she was having a run with the title in 1987, she's, she's um, 24 at oldest. Yeah, fuck. Like, that's crazy. Because, like, yeah, because, I mean, to be honest, like, um, I, I, in some ways, I would have liked to have seen them, them have a, a longer match as well. Uh, because I would have been interested to have seen what it was like with maybe a few more kind of um, hope spots from Amori and maybe a few more bits of like fiery baby face uh, uh, sort of shtick as well. Um, uh, because yeah, I mean, yeah. Really, the only the only real the only moves I can remember other than the ones that you just mentioned there that she really gets on offense were there's um, there's, there's a series of kicks um, which are you know they're not the, the world's worst kicks but they're not the best either and yeah she didn't really get I'd like to definitely see more of her see a, a more rounded picture of what she's like as a worker I think. Yeah. Um, David, have you got anything anything to add? 
Um, no, I mean, I, I did, I, I did enjoy it. To be honest, I was focusing more on Monster Ripper on the sort of news because I, I mean, this is this is right up my alley. Mm. I love this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, she was Amori was twenty four, by the way. Twenty four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Monster Ripper is the one who really grabbed you in this match. I mean, if you're interested in seeing more of her, I would recommend um, there's some stuff of her. She had a running stampede. Um, also, um, matches with uh, Wendy Richter in WWC in uh, Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and she has a, a really fucking good host battle with uh, Bull Nakano in uh, like 1991, 1992, um, somewhere around that time. That's worth a shot, uh, a watch as the, the current monster, top monster heel against the person who really set those wheels in motion. One thing I also did notice is that uh, I think the commentator pronounces it as um, uh, Monster Ritter. Ah, right, okay. <laughs> eight, eight, eight simple rules for dating my Gaijin heel. <laughs> oh, man. Like, um... I think that the, the thing about the thing about Amari in, in, in this match is that she's she has a role and she fulfils it really well, yeah. but that's not the kind of role that really gives you the chance to showcase... Mm you know, everything that you're capable of. It's a similar role to kind of, you know, Sami Zayn being beaten up by Braun Strowman. You you, you sell really yeah. well mm. and you know, you make the other guy you, you make the other person look look yeah. great. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be, you know, a showcase piece for you no, either. No. Yeah. And it does and it, make it me think, really okay, well yeah. she's got potential for further matches. Yeah, she's a carpenter, really. Like, you know, she's the person who works with, with the oh, stuff. Not, not like and, Karen, you know, but, right, I thought you were like <laughs> No, I'm not like Kevin. Like I was, I was thinking yeah, that as well. But you feel like she's a singer. But maybe she also longs to be close to you, David uh, but, uh, and Daniel. Well, she might have been maybe. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Look, if we if we were close to each other, we wouldn't have to use fucking fucking Skype yeah. and all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Um. So yeah, the um. So that's that's your um. Well, I guess the opener for the purposes of this. Uh, the next match is uh, somewhat more substantial, oh. and there's a uh, quite quite a lot more to get our teeth into here. So this is a. Um, not for any title, there's a best two out of three falls tag match uh, between the team of the wonderfully named team of Jumping Bomb Angels, yes. the face team made up of Norio Tateno and Itsuki Yamazaki, um, against um, what, one of the iconic heel tag teams of AJW, uh, the Atrocious Alliance, uh, made up of Dump Matsumoto and Bornicano. Our Lord, so, our Saviour, our. Yeah. Or yeah. Paragon of Hanston. Yeah. Pil- so so b- before we before we get onto the atrocious alliance, um, uh, jumping bomb angels. Um, just a bit about them. Again, if you if you've watched uh, WWF uh, when they had a working relationship with uh, AJW, um, they took part in a couple of uh, the first Survivor Series shows over, they, as part of the uh, women. Over really huge on yeah. those shows as well. No one knew who yeah. they were, but like they were streets ahead of anyone in else in the match, very clearly with their athleticism and and their great wrestling, and also how they. I think it's the Royal Rumble. Is it nineteen eighty eight? Is it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah, their best two out of three falls matches. Uh, a match against mm-hmm. um the glam uh, the glamour girls, uh, Lilani Kay and uh, Ju Ju. Judy that's Martin. A, that, Judy Martin. Um, that's that, what that, I was trying to think. I remember. I can remember. Yeah, I can remember Judy Martin. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, o- OSW uh, always referred to as the Terminator Judy Martin because she just <laughs> never sells. The the other thing about the Jumping Bomb Angels is that um, Itsuki Yamazaki is, uh, was apparently the um, person who first put um, a young Mike Quackenbush in touch with hey. Minami Toyota. Because ah. uh, uh, Yamazaki actually oh. lives in New York. Oh. And she was the one who uh, put, put them in contact and arranged for Minami Toyota to come to Chikara and... Mike Quackenbush now presumably has a shrine to Itsuki Yamazaki in uh, a corner of the Wrestle Factory. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, he'd have to move the shrine of Manami Toyota first. It's a sure subsidiary. It's, it's a subsidiary so, shrine. A satellite train. The satellite. <laughs> it's like uh, as um, Union Pro <laughs> is to TDT. Uh, <laughs> Shout out to Jamie. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Love you, Jamie. And uh, yeah, the um, the other team is. Well, it's not really a team. It's more of a, a heel stable because uh, other members of the stable will get no. involved somewhat liberally yeah. uh, throughout this match. Um, so the atrocious alliance. I would love to know if. If that is a direct translation of the Japanese, or whether it just happens to wonderfully alliterate, mm. or whether that is, you know, sometimes how Japanese teams call themselves something in English. Um, but that is a tremendous name for a, a stable. It's not quite the Holy Demon Army, no, but like it is up there. Good, and right. yeah, like um, so the Atrocious Alliance, uh, Dump Matsumoto, who also did some work with WWF in the eighties. Um, so she was the person who really took that formula um, introduced by Monster Ripper as you're not just big and imposing but uh sort of the monster gimmick in terms of just in terms of aesthetics as well she picked that up and uh, really ran, ran with it i've got her um it says in my notes she looks like both a punk and a cop which yeah. is a uh, something of a contradiction in terms because she got like the basically it's like japanese 80s wrestling promotion idea of what punk yeah. is so she's got leather on a lot of leather but also like a, a baton and aviators yeah. And uh, and stuff like that. So it's um, like it's it's a strange aesthetic, but one that uh, she really pulled yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Like I think the thing is with like with like uh, with, with Dump is that she's very uh, much like as you've said. Yeah, she takes on the kind of monster ripper template that, that that's been established of the the big kind of um, um, imposing uh, sort of um, uh, stronger uh, sort of woman, but she also brings um, this real real sense of absolute chaos to all the matches that she's in and yes. also yes. is in my in my opinion one of the the probably least referred to um but most in, uh, important influences on what would become hardcore wrestling as well um, um in in some senses in the sense that her matches um really um a, a lot of the, a lot of them, especially these tag ones where she's tagging with them with, with bull and the rest of the army often descend into the kind of utter like madness and chaos, which is often credited in in places like uh, uh, Memphis and things like that as being this huge, big influence on what would become hardcore wrestling in America. Well, it's hard for me to watch these kind of matches, and especially um, uh, a match that we'll maybe talk about in another episode um, uh, um, against Chigusa Nagoya, uh, Nagoya, the famous hair match, um, in which um, she's liberally yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, stabbing her uh, with, with, with scissors and that kind of thing. There's a real genuine unhinged um, violent edge um, uh, that often involves weapons, that often involves a lot of brawling outside, that often involves gallons of blood. And my first notes in this, my, my, my two first notes for this match are just, first of all, young bull, exclamation mark. Um, and next it just says, absolute chaos, three, uh, three exclamation marks. So, uh, yeah, that gives you yeah. an idea. Of... <laughs> if you ever want to make a case for Dub Matsumoto having chaotic matches, here's exhibit fucking A right here, man, because this yeah. was... It's great. Off I the love chain, this so man. much. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It's utter lunacy. <laughs> like, Dub Matsumoto is a pr- profoundly scary woman. Some of the things she would wear as well, just... Come out in a prison jumpsuit with a swastika on it. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, yeah. just because it's it's Japan, so it's fine. Uh, Actually, I know you you said that Young Bull was your was like the first thing that you had written yeah. down. The first thing that I had written down were were the Atrocious Alliance terrifying at the time, or was this a bit YMCA? <laughs> like legit, 
I wasn't entirely sure like whether this would have been as scary as I presumed it was intended to look. I mean, as it stands, I don't think it matters because by the time they start wrestling, you know they're meant to be terrifying I, I, anyway. I, but I couldn't quite work out whether it was kind of almost to the point of caricature. I think the aesthetic maybe seems a bit tame and silly now, but I think... Um, but, I mean, at the time in the 80s, there was um, quite a, a few scares going around in the Japanese media about... Um, or the word is, um, the term they would use is uh, Yankee, mm-hmm. um, yeah. taken from the American, basically, uh, street punks. <laughs> and the, the, the people were actually genuinely scared of these new countercultures that were taking place in Japan. Um, the, it's just like the people in Akira. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People with no eyebrows and just huff glue the whole time. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. that's, basically, that's basically what that was. And so they're really sort of tapping into people's fears. I think people would have found it scarier than it does look a bit campy by today's standards mm-hmm. um but i think uh people would have been quite scared by it back then so before we talk about the match if we get on to um get on to bornicano um so um again she was basically at this point sort of uh matsumoto's mini me but um in the 90s she really came into her own with her i think thousand day long reign with the wwe title um really as the unbeatable the unbeatable monster heel, and of course her run in WWF most notably with uh, SummerSlam 1994. Bonacano's story is actually um, she's an amazing woman in in many yeah. many ways. Her, her career trajectory is actually quite instructive in the um, the ways that these these women had to really commit to their roles mm. um, because basically what they would do if like if you were a great athlete and you, they reckon you have what it took. You would get an AJW contract when you were very young. Bonacano joined the pro- promotion when she was only 15 years old. I think she's uh, as old as 17 uh, during this match. And uh, Bonacano was someone who loved AJW all her life, and she's seen it on the TV. And um, she had this dream that she was going to be uh, a pop star uh, and a wrestler for AJW, and she was going to be the uh, glamorous babyface. <laughs> and she actually got to AJW. Her issue. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately or maybe fortunately for her in the long run was that she was quite a bit taller uh, than the other women. Um, I don't know if she had like grown to her tallest height at this time, but um, she was five foot eight, which um, certainly by standards of Japanese women is was, uh, is very tall indeed. Shit, Tomohiro Ishii's five yeah, foot four. Yeah. <laughs> he plays like a hard ass yeah. gimmick in uh, in New Japan. So basically, they took one look at Bornakano. Uh, she was much taller than the other women, and they were like, "Okay, you're going to be a monster heel." And uh, she was she was quite cut up about this because she wanted to be a um, to be a face. But if, eventually she was like, okay, this is the role I've been assigned. And um, part of her playing up to this role was um, that she had to gain rather a lot of weight for this. And um, when she was first starting out in AJW, she was uh, taking in I think ten thousand calories a day <laughs> to oh, bulk up. Like, I don't. I don't know how I would fucking do that. I don't think I've got ten thousand calories worth of food in this fucking like what, flat. What 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 was what was her diet just like? <laughs> I mean, to be steak. fair, you do like you some pizza. It was pretty much the same sort of like high protein stuff that sumo wrestlers right, right, eat. Right. It's like a fucking fifteen year old girl. Um, basically, it's like yeah, you're on the fucking akabono <laughs> diet. Fifteen fish suppers. I mean, I should have to think the potential health damage that that could have yeah. caused, that that could have caused, but. She seems to have done it in, you know, a relatively safe way because she had quite a long co- career at, at that weight. Yeah. And then eventually she retires, loses all of the weight, 
and releases a cookbook with a bunch of healthy recipes and things talking about how she managed to lose the weight and then becomes a professional golfer. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then and then opens a bar. And then opens a opens bar. Opens a bar yes. where just... I am going one day. Yeah, the the great thing about that. this is like um you look at that um that amazing Alundra Blaze uh Borna Carlo match from SummerSlam nineteen ninety four. If I said to you and you know nothing about these women, I say to you, one of these women is gonna become a professional golfer <laughs> after their career ends and one of them is gonna end up driving monster trucks, you would not yeah. think that it was the way around <laughs> yeah. that it actually is. The other um the other mad thing that Borna Carlo did was um she got aged out of um AJW, though she would come back for some uh, Legends matches in the early 90s. Then she went off to Mexico and uh, would have had a longer run in the WWF had she not got um, fired for being caught with a lot of coke at the yeah. border. Yeah. Um, I mean, allegedly. But, but I mean, at the same time, she was also doing incredible things there because, for example, she was the very first um, women's champion in CMLL, which is the oldest promotion in in mexico in, in, the, in the world, world in the world yeah, yeah. so actually yeah. yeah yeah so she's had an she's got a huge number of achievements in basically yeah most of you know the world's biggest pro wrestling markets except you know i don't think she she particularly came here no but it, you know she's got she's got a whole bunch of achievements to her name in in mexico obviously in japan she also you know had a, a good run in america could have been a lot better and yet, she's not in the WWE Hall of Fame. Let's move on from that, no, let, because let's, it makes me mad. Let's not move on, because uh, you wrote a very nice article uh, about it. I, the thing is, Bull Nakano is quite possibly the coolest human being that has ever yep. lived. Yeah, she I, is. I genuinely, yeah. Oh, she yeah. is. Right. Yeah. Right, I mean, right. I, I absolutely love Bull Nakano. And I think that, you, you know, she's, she's somebody who is so important in a particular section of WWE's history because what they're trying to do, and you can see it in the way that they're building it up with the women that they're choosing to induct into the Hall of Fame at, or, or, at the moment, is that they are basically trying to retrospectively build a lineage of women's wrestling yeah. during the times when they weren't giving women's wrestling the time of day. That's basically what they're doing here. So the the women that have been in, inducted so far, for a while, Sensational Sherry was the only one that was in yeah. there. Eventually, you know, now we've got, um, when you look at the, the, the time periods that are actually covered now from Sensational Sherry, Alundra Blaze and, and Jacqueline are, are now in. But beyond that, you know, you've got Sonny's in there and then you've got Trish mm. and Lita. There's only something like seven or eight women who are actually in the yeah, WWE Beth Hall Phoenix of Fame. Now. And now Beth Phoenix. So what they're doing when you look at the way they're piecing it together is they're gradually trying to put in sort of a woman who covers virtually every different time period mm. during that ju- during that stint. So Jacqueline is kind of your your handover to to Trish and Lita, yeah. and then from there it's kind of it's a bit awkward, but that's where you get to Beth Phoenix. And from Beth Phoenix, essentially they're retrospectively justifying the women's evolution as being an evolution and not a revolution. And I'm making all of the inverted commas gestures in the world because I still think that all of that is lip service, mm. and you know. Let, let's not let's not dwell on that too yeah. much. But I think that Bull Nakano plays a very specific role in in that lineage, not least because Alundra Blaze's run would not be anywhere near as rich and textured and interesting as important as it was without the, the Bull Nakano feud, which did so much to put her on the map and to keep justifying the time that was being given to Alundra Blaze in WWE's women's division. But also... She is a really obvious 
choice in the logical step of tracing the monster heels. And I think that someone like Nia Jax, who the company who very, very obviously is invested in, karma's not going to go in the Hall of Fame. Like, that's almost no, certainly I mean, not going to happen. No. So, and, and China is definitely not going to go in the Hall of Fame, as much as that pains me to say. So, realistically, if you're going back, to try and find like the women who are potential precedents for someone like Nia Jax and fit them into that lineage that you're building up. Who else is there? Like, it's such an obvious bet to me that she should be in there. And not just because I fucking love the woman. Like, to me, it makes perfect sense in terms of the story yeah. they're trying to spin. You know, she should have been in there bloody years ago. She's in Meltzer's Hall of Fame, which, you know, you can argue <laughs> the is... One that matters, really. I mean, I mean, it's the one that matters, but it's not the one people see. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I really think that Bulmakana deserves more of a Jew than she gets because she had a huge role in American wrestling, which is the only wrestling Vince yeah. McMahon seems to care about. I mean, she, I mean, fucking hell, Enoki and Fujinami are in there. And you could argue that on American soil in WWF shows, she did more than them. I know Enoki was mm. WWF champion very, very I think briefly. You could certainly but like, argue that, that more of the, what you might, what these days gets referred to, and I'm not always actually sure if this is actually a thing or not. I think this might be kind of like a phantom classification, but anyway, that's another story. Um, the casual fan. Um, you could say that actually, you know, compared to Fujinami, mm. or compared to, because um, Fujinami, uh, you know, ha has the, um, uh, he, he won like the, the, the junior, uh, what was like the junior heavyweight title of the right? Yeah. Junior yeah. heavyweight title, WWF one. Yeah. He also uh, won the WCW title from Flair yes, and right. had the match at Super Bowl. That's literally about it. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got obviously Inoki, who has the um, the victory, well, the, 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 the not actually championship. Rain thing as well, right? That, that, that that's a thing. Yeah, uh, right. it's 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 not exactly. Like, he also has a massive chin. He does have an enormous chin. Uh, like um, it's <laughs> yeah, uh, longer than it is wide, of course. Uh, like uh, un 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 <laughs> unlike un uh, unlike Paul Daniel's head, which as everyone knows is wider than it is long. Um, oh, he's dead, isn't he? Oh, he's dead. Past tense. Past tense, that's terrible for a teacher of the English language. Anyway, I'm on a tangent. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that I think the book, I think book Paul McConnell has a much better claim in terms of like, um, you know, someone that actually penetrated the consciousness of, uh, you know, wrestling fans that are probably still fairly young today. Like, I mean, like, uh, she was, I, I knew of her before I knew any other Japanese uh, 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 women's wrestler. Um, so, you know, that has to say something, I guess. I, I hope, if she does go in the Hall of Fame, and I think it probably will happen at some point, um, because yeah. they, because they ha they've under-pushed women's wrestlers for so long that they're actually running out of yeah. ones to put in the Hall of Fame. Um, if she does go in the Hall of Fame, I sincerely hope, uh, she doesn't do what she did, uh, back in 2012, because the thing about Borna Kano is that she never had a retirement ceremony. And so in 2012, about, I think, 13 years after her career had actually ended, for whatever reason, she thought, I'm going to have myself a retirement ceremony. And then so I'm going to get some of my, my greatest opponents back in, uh, people like um, uh, Minami Toyota, Raja Kong, people like that, Shinobu Kandori. And, um, but she did think to herself, hmm, OK, uh, but because um, she'd lost all this weight. She's like, I need to look like I did back in the 90s. So uh, she went and gained about 90 pounds in six months. I mean, that's Madness. nothing if not committed. Yeah, I mean, like, she's, she's, she's literally doing a De Niro and Raging Bull. Like, it's like... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, Raging it's, Bull in a very different sense. Yeah, I can see. Well, yeah. One, of, yeah. one of the reasons we're doing this episode is purely because um, we have... Well, there, there's an AGW reunion coming up in September with Nicano Fielding at, at the top. Uh, you know, she, she announced it at the press conference and things like that. 
And as much as I'd love to see her wrestle again, oh. I really hope she doesn't, man. I yeah, really hope she doesn't. I because no, because she... Lay, lay off the pies in the panel. I, I, I think, actually, that um, what they should do is she can still play her role, own role, but she should just wrestle children. Like, get some of the children from Stardom's roster. <laughs> she, she can still look really big and imposing because she's facing really tiny people. Yeah, these cows are very far away. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think this 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 match because you know uh, there there is a match here that we've got to talk about, guys. Um, that this match is really interesting to seeing how that relationship between Paul Nakano and Dump Matsumoto, who was in many ways kind of her her mentor and her the the vampiro to her Pentagon Dark, if you will. Um, <laughs> she's been, she she's very much sort of training her in the ways of evil and darkness here. Um, what? I like about this is the way that they that the way that their pairing seems to work is that Nakano being sort of the the younger slightly smaller one of the two basically comes in and does the wrestling and does a little bit more of a technical is not necessarily the right word but she certainly does more of the the wrestlingy bits and then mm. she'll just tag out and Matsumoto will come in and flatten someone like, and I mean, they start when they are literally waving kendo sticks at the commentators on their way out, if I remember yeah. this correctly. So, you know, they're they're not afraid of a bit of brutality, but they've got a nice dynamic there, which means that, you know, Nakano can do something a bit more technical and then potentially, you know, one of the jumping bomb angels can get in a bit of a hope spot. They can start making a bit of a comeback. And then Matsumoto just comes in and twats them and knocks them down. Like, And it's a really yeah. nice kind of... It builds on kind of what we saw in the in the Monster Ripper match as well, with the idea of you know you can you can build up all of your speed and you can build up all of your energy, but there's a there's a big woman there who does not care about your safety and is really happy to just put you on your ass again. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and um, Dump Matsumoto is certainly uh, the bigger version, uh, sorry, the bigger one in her team. Yeah. Uh, by quite a way, Borna Khan has certainly been heavier in her career, so that's also a part of it. I did like. Um, I did, yeah, I did like them coming out with the uh, the skull and crossbones. Didn't realise they were uh, FC St. Pauli fans uh, all the way back in <laughs> 1985. Um, the the uh, the chaos is really what strikes me in this match. Everyone yeah. comes a cropper. Seconds, the commentators get threatened. Um, the cameramen, uh, it's like there's five Shawn Michaelses um, around the ring. The cameramen are continually coming a cropper, but the person who comes in for probably the most punishment in this match is the ref. Yeah. Oh, God. Like, the referee takes so much abuse in... Um, I don't know what whether they just came out and said, like, it's an ODQ match. Um, I've never mm. seen it listed as one. I think sometimes in hateful Joshi brawls, they can be, like, very lenient with the rules. Yeah. Like, people just come in and do run-ins oh, yeah. um, all over the bloody shop. But fucking hell, the referee absolutely gets it in this. Like, mm. um, the, the, there's some violent hair whips... Um, by the atrocious alliance, they just get in the jumping bomb angels by the hair, chucking them around. Then they'll chuck the other jumping bomb angel around. Then the ref will get uh, pulled around by a hair, just trying to maintain some order. Like, no, sorry, this is uh, not that kind of match. I mean, it gets brutal. I mean, at one point, uh, you, my my notes include things like dump strangles Yamazaki with a chain lots oh, of the, the, yeah. oh god the chain, yeah. the chain bit's great like the chain bit is like if, if anyone's ever seen any classic like dog collar matches from the US like Valentine Piper yeah. um, any, anything like that it's um, it's it's as brutal as that. I mean, it, it's full blown like strangulation. It's not even like you know, oh, you know that that spot where you put it around their head, but they kind of 
they stop it from going into their eyes by putting their fingers in. It's literally yeah. just them get, they're getting strangled and dragged about. It's absolutely insane. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, there's one bit where she, I think she hoists her off yeah. her back, yeah. and pulls back in the chain, and it looks, it looks mad. Yeah, it like, looks really, it's like some sort of medieval torture instrument. It's, it's like really fucked yeah. up. Should not do like a sort of like a choke slam sort of thing mm. with it. She ramps around yeah. and lifts them up with a choke slam. Yeah. Like and, yeah. And this this brought me to something that I've 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 noted down as well, which is that. I've got a bit of a like uh, a, a bit of a thing about this, and I, I always like uh, try and make a distinction between this. Is that um, there is a difference to me between what would be sort of commonly classed as kind of just outright, you know, uh, garbage wrestling, right, and what it takes to put on a really good hardcore like brawl of a match, right? And yeah. you know, in the nineties um, and, and the early two thousands, I think all of us probably, um, you know, at one point or another. Uh, maybe, you know, um, uh, got into, say, um, you know, um, well, all of us that were into, say, ECW, for example, would eventually sort of, you know, look for more and more extreme things, and you'd end up with, you know, a tape of, like, you know, Madman Pondo smashed his head into glass for, like, you know, 15 hours. And it, it's very desensitizing, that that kind of garbage wrestling, right? It's it, it's not the kind of thing which really um, uh, uh, does it for me at all. Uh, but this is, like, much more minimal means, uh, much more um, sort of controlled in a way, even though it's completely chaotic, and they just pick these little moments of brutality um, and sort of um, 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 tease them out. So there's a bit well, where um, that I've just got noted down here. There's a bit where um, dump, and I can't remember which one of the jumping bomb angels it is, but they're literally just exchanging like slaps across the head with anything they can pick up off the floor. And I don't even know. Yeah, there's an ace pack. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Ace pack. Yeah, and it's like they just keep picking things up, and like Dump's got like is quite happy because she ends up with this like quite big, almost like an Adger uh, Kong style sort of tin like you know bin thing. And yeah. she's just like whacking around the head. And then you can see his poor, the, the poor jumping bomb angel. Like, she can't find, like, anything on the floor anymore. She just picks up, like, this, this piece of, like, cloth and just goes, oh, fuck it! And just, like, tries to hit her. And Dump's just like, what? Like, how how dare you? Like, you know? And it's, like, if you've been whipped by a towel in the showers at school, like, uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, make, I'd, make, make, I'd rather I take uh, ten oh, kendo oh, sticks. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I went to comprehensive school, man. We didn't get up to that shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> shit. At one point, at one point, they get the flowers that like they're giving at the start of the match. She she beats the fuck out of her with the flowers. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. But you see, what I, oh, man. one of the things I really like about this match is that the intensity is actually coming from both sides as yes. well because you've got yeah, eventually, yeah. you know, because the Jumping Bomb Angels have no problem whatsoever with giving them all of that right back. So, yeah, admittedly... Yeah. Nakano takes a fucking amazing bump yeah. into the, like, the second row. Yeah. Just pure, yeah. Yeah, but I think this is... Uh, the, the note that I've made here is, like... The, this this fiery comeback sort of in the second fall and they are they're going out to the chairs and they're going to the ringside if they if they needed and that's kind of what leads to the double count out um for for one of the falls and the words I've written next to it are do this with Bailey and I, I think that that's a the the point that I think I was trying to make is the idea that we recently had our, our extreme rules or something the whole point of a match that made bailey look particularly silly was that she was in a kendo stick on a pole match i mean that makes you look silly to start with but then the <laughs> idea of this the the idea of this match w was you know it ended up essentially being an extended squash for alexa and the idea behind it was that bailey was too nice and she didn't want to hurt Alexa by using the kendo oh. stick on the pole that was the point it's, of the that's pole. That's not how wrestling should work. That's not no, how exactly. Work. And I think the thing that's is... That's not how baby it, faces should work. Oh. Exactly. Like, uh, the, the baby face being too nice to hit someone when hitting <laughs> someone is basically your job, I find really confusing. Because yeah. what we've got... What we've got 
here is the prime example of how a babyface in the right situation where they've been pushed enough and the match is violent enough it's okay to do that and it's okay to have that intensity and to go out there and yeah if you've got to hit someone with a chair you you, you know you hit someone with a chair because it's yeah. okay in the context of that match and you don't have yeah, to yeah, hold yeah. back out of some sense of niceness no and actually i i genuinely think that they could do a bit more of that with bailey because there's that moment in what is still one of my favorite matches probably ever is in, in the Brooklyn match where Bailey finally wins the belt off Sasha Banks and there's the moment where she snaps and Sasha keeps saying to her you will never beat me and she loses it and she just rails on her and that's if she did that more often to the point where you know what I am righteously angry and I am going to take that out on you yeah there's something so special there and it's one of the reasons I actually think that you know they're doing bad things with her character at the minute but the jumping bomb angels 32 years ago are proving that you can do are proving that you can do that level of babyface intensity without losing your support because yeah. the heat for this match is ludicrous. Yeah. Oh, but this is the, but this is the thing you you make you make such a good point about that because to me in terms of like where I come from in terms of how I view the fundamentals of character work in wrestling, right? Um, that is an essential part to me of, of any babyface's routine, right? Um, yeah. Can you, ima- can you imagine Magnum Tully in the cage at, at, at Starcade and Magnum just goes, ah, actually, you know what? I've had enough of this. I, I, I'm above this. The whole point of the thing is that he's bringing himself down to that level and he feels disgusted, but he has to do it. Come on! Like, this is what his job yeah. is at, you know? Like, like it's, I, it's I, I've, I've not been watching the, um, the, like, the AJW weekly TV episodes leading up to this, but I can tell you what the storyline is. Uh, and it's immediately obvious just from watching the match. It's that mm. the Jumping Away Angels ha- have had enough of the atrocious alliances shit, and they are prepared to fight fire with fire. I mean, there's yeah. a there's a there's a great bit where um, there's uh, Bornicano does like a bandai drop and then a lariat and then a splash on um, mm-hmm. Tateno, and <laughs> Yamazaki breaks up the pin <laughs> by running over and kicking the ref. <laughs> <laughs> not not the person doing the pin, which also would have served to break it. But, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, you think your hand's coming down for the three, do you? <laughs> well, I actually, I do know the story behind this because when I was looking for the research, somebody did a review of like oh, uh, right. numbers one to seven of the AGW Classics. And what it was is that Nakano had a match against Yamazaki for a singles title. Mm. A one to say it was a junior heavyweight. No, 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 it's not a junior heavyweight. It's um, just a junior title. I you had yeah. to be under eighteen. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a it was a junior title and uh, Nakano versus Yamazaki and predictably the atrocious alliance all just barged in and beat the fuck out of Yamazaki for a copious amount of time until um, Yamazaki's partner turned into to the running and it was just thrown out at this point after like fifteen minutes of just you know people. <laughs> you know, interfering, you're like, no, this is too much, you threw it out. And at that point, they threw it out and she was still the champion. She gave the belt back, she vacated it, so that she could have a run at the Atrocious Alliance so they could take the tag belts off. Wow. Of them. Uh, yeah, so I thought that was really effective and, yeah, um, I thought that was a really good uh, storyline yeah. tool that they used. Yeah. She vacated the belt to say, no, we're going to go to this together. Yeah, that, that is really yeah. cool. Like, That's awesome. The, there's, some, yeah, there's, so much, there's so much interfering. Like, there's, I'm not sure the names of all the people who are in the Atrocious Alliance. No one of them is called Crane Yu, who is uh, continually running in until she uh, 
during the first ball gets tossed by the ref. Now, when like you use that parlance in wrestling, it's like the referee tosses them, i.e. they do that really exaggerated move with their arms. And then, yeah, you're out of here. Yeah, yeah. The back. No, no, the ref literally tosses Crane U like, across the ring. Yeah. Imagine Earl Hebner doing that to The Rock. <laughs> what I will say, though, is... It, there's another one... Um, one of the other members called Grizzly Iwamoto. Yes, that's right. So I'm like three or four, and like I was really surprised. Like you know, um, like she was really, really good, and like she, I'm really surprised she didn't go as far because like, in terms of like she's up there with like Nakano and things like that in terms of like package and things. I'm really surprised she just kind of tailed off because like the matches I've seen of her. Absolutely brilliant. No. I don't really know much about many of the other members of the Atrocious Alliance, to be honest. A lot of them seem to have kind of stayed in relatively sort of lower lower card roles. The the thing I'm not entirely sure which which one of them it is with with Bull and Dump, but at one point they pull off a triple team finisher, which is a double assisted pile driver, which looks horrendous. Oh yeah, god, yeah, yeah. That is. Yeah. You know, that they've got so much force that, and power, and one of the things that's really nice about this match is that in all the po- in all the points where the, the jumping bomb angels finally start to get on a roll, you can see how fluid their movements are. Yeah. They're so much they're really fast and they are they are the technically better wrestlers, and you know that that's kind of why this whole match is happening, is because technical wrestling doesn't get the atrocious alliance actually all that far. So then you see them being able to essentially know that they've got size on their side know that they've got numbers on their side they've got all of this realistically the reason that they get so much heat is because the atrocious alliance know that they probably could win clean because they're just so much bigger than the other women but they're dicks anyway oh, because they can yeah. be and it works really really yeah, nicely there's, there's a great bit where bornacano taunts uh, yamazaki who's on the apron by uh Tateno sort of She's going for a hot tag and Bulls just sort of like gets her hand and like sort of holds it towards the corner. It's like, oh, you're going to make a tag? You're going to make it? Nah, nah, you're not. That was, um, that was really good. One thing I really liked about this is it was a two or three falls match. And what happened is that at the start, they all just brawled for so long and got counted out. And they made the executive decision where going, you know, second fall is negated. It's sudden death. And he yeah, just hit yeah. the fall. Yeah, and that, that's always the, been the way it was. I mean, the... Um, the second Rikidozan Luthez match, they they're tied at one fall apiece, and the third fall is um, a double count out, so they both get a point, and so the match ends in a draw. That was actually quite a. Um, I think Delia Louis did one of those. Reese... No, it wasn't. It was a uh, progress. The uh, Champa Saber match from last year. It was a two out of three falls match, and I think it it might be a double count out or a double knockout or something, and they just yeah. did a deciding fall after that. So that's uh, still used. The, one of my favourite parts of the match actually is uh, just after the um, the uh, double count out when they get back in the ring and as you said Yamazaki blocks a cane shot with a towel and um, uh, Tateno um, is tooled up a little bit more in that she has nunchucks rather than um, a towel um, doing the whole sort of uh, maxi off of Soul Calibur uh, thing who I always love playing as on that particular fighting game because no matter what buttons you press he'll do something incredible with the nunchucks just waving his arms about they'll be going every which way but loose so that was uh that was really cool but yeah like you say it goes back towards um jumping bomb angels great athletes technically great but the atrocious alliance take shortcuts and they're big and powerful there's a spot in the deciding for where 
you know that sort of knuckle lock test of strength spot that um, people like to yeah. do. I mean, about yeah. 15 minutes of uh, Hulk Hogan versus Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 6 consists of that. Dun Matsumoto wins a test of strength using one hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's. Um, it, it actually reminded me of um, a spot in a match from ooh, about eight years earlier, uh, which one of my favourite matches of the 70s, which is um, Jumbo Saruta against Terry Funk. Um, That's a great one, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in which they, they basically have what is essentially just a test of strength that, that turns into a backslide. They're both trying to, you know, turn it into a backslide. And it's one of the most, like, arresting, sort of like a, a minute or so of, of, of wrestling I've ever seen. But I was reminded of that, like, you know, the way in which... Um, I, I, and this goes into a lot of, you know, what you just said there about, you know, Hogan's kind of um, um, test of strength, which I think have an appeal as well, and I actually do like uh, uh, quite a lot myself. But there is something... Often you'll see things in in, in in Joshi at this time that you just don't little tweaks to sort of normal passages and expected passages that you wouldn't actually see that often in, in America. Just things like that, you know, like just doing that with like one hand. It's so badass, like you know, and it's, it's just really a, cool. a simple yeah. way of creating this extra aura around like this 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 character. Yeah, you know? I mean, the other thing that um, leading on, this actually leads on to something I was going to say. Um, one of the things that you often get in uh, in Joshi that you don't often get in men dressing i'm not particularly sure of the reason for this but it's a, um quite an often used trope is the uh, the joshi kick out now yeah, if you've watched that. any yeah. round of joshi you'll know what i'm talking about in that rather than um it's putting their shoulder up they will actually do a neck bridge to escape yeah. from a pin so they're not just rolling out but they're using their strength and their will to force the body of the person pinning them down up off of the ground minami, yeah. minami toyota um does that uh, quite a lot and there's a great passage here just before I mean that triple team you mentioned Sarah yeah. that's actually the end of the match but just mm. before that um, Dump is uh, well she's using a bin as well but <laughs> she's grinding down mm. Yamazaki with splashes and uh, backdrops things like that and she's doing these bridges to kick out but she's just getting weaker and weaker each yeah. time and it's actually a um, it's a much better way of doing this storytelling device because you've got it's um it's digital rather than analog in terms of strength of kickouts. Really, in um, if you're doing the normal kind of kickout, you can do the big fucking John Cena kickout at two where he basically rolls onto his front. Um, his his kickouts are that powerful, or you can sort of do the quite sort of feeble one. But you've got a lot more scope for different strengths of kickouts if you're actually doing the neck bridge type, and they they mm. do that to really good effect um, in this match. But then they lose to the triple team uh, power driver anyway. Um, so yeah, that's another one of those things that is slightly tweaked in Joshi. I once did, um, like, uh, like, uh, at the gym that I like, uh, occasionally trade out, I, I like, I usually do like just the Muay Thai class, but sometimes I do the, like the, the beginners grappling class as well, just for a laugh. And I, I once like tried to do, uh, uh bridging, um, just a basic wrestler's bridge. <laughs> it's so hard. Like, I'm not even joking. It is like, you see, it, it's such a basic part of like any wrestler, especially Japanese um, women's wrestlers' repertoire at this, at this time. And it's used so often that it's easy for like people that are just watching it to think, like, oh, you know, that, 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 that must be like what you'll learn on, on day one. Like, it's so tough. Like, um, you have to be incredibly strong, incredibly flexible. You have to have really strong neck muscles. And like, it's, it's, it's kind of a scary thing to do as well because you almost feel like you're. The pressure's pushing down on your neck, and if you do it wrong, you could be in trouble. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's, it's no mean feat. Like, anyone that's... Yeah, go to a class and try and do that for the first time. 
fucking difficult. Like well, it really is. Like, what, one one thing I will say, um, like we've been we've been very positive about that this match, and rightly so. It's um it's a really thrilling and exhilarating visceral brawl um but and we've been very nice about the uh, jumping bomb angels and again with good reason they're great athletes and, uh, and a great tag team yeah mm. however um they do have one black mark against them which you will see in this match and indeed uh, a black mark that dogs uh, the jumping bomb angels um careers really um they innovated the double foot stomp <laughs> Your bet noir, your white whale. Um, they were the ones who um, popularised it. Yeah, and uh, so do you know we we reference white whales more often in the WDL on this podcast, man. <laughs> we, should, we should we should probably explain this for anyone for anyone that's listening that isn't sure. So this it gets a little bit complicated, right? But okay, so essentially this is the Poropuri podcast, but this is an outgrowth. Of uh, that makes it sound like a disease of some kind or a system. It is kind of. Um, <laughs> it is kind of. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's an outgrowth of a of, of a Facebook group that we started um a long time ago now where we all met at shows and wanted to sort of um, keep in touch and that grew into what is now a website. Um, I maintain the book double on the silly dot com. Uh, and yeah, so just to just to clarify this because lots of people have asked us about this uh, and people will say, <laughs> oh god, I'm you know, change, change the name of your website. It's ridiculous. And we're like, that's the point. Have some fucking fun, you squares. Um, basically, <laughs> um, you know, I'll change the name of your website. Watch, so I'll change it to Pile Driver or like Pose Them. So fuck off. Like, anyway, um, it's just really pissed me off, man. Right, so anyway, it's because I consider Double Foot Stomp to be probably, as George has said, it's my better It's one of my most hated moves. The only other move I probably hate more is probably when Triple H gets a sledgehammer out. Uh, that's how yeah, much fair. I fucking hate For the same reason as only... well, probably. Yeah, yeah, pretty much for the same Now, look, I, I, I'm not, you know, I can suspend disbelief and I can I can get into wacky shit or whatever, but for whatever reason, I find it very difficult to do with the double foot stomp. It's just, if, if you do that to someone, they're dead, right? They're fucking dead. Like, it, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, it's not realistic to me. So, yeah, that, that was uh, that was the reference there in case anyone wasn't sure. <laughs> I don't mind it in this it's... match because I think you could drop a warhead on Matsumoto and she'd be fine. Oh, yeah. So I can suspend yeah, my disbelief fine. here. My, my, my entire approach to the double foot stomp is, it, generally that is true. But if it's the finish of the match, I'm fine with that because the whole point mm-hmm. is that that should be the kind of thing that levels someone. You know, uh, yeah. in, in this case, in this case, yeah, fair enough. You know, dump, dump Matsumoto. There are, you know, I'm sure that there are natural disasters that she would survive and be fine. She is the anti earthquake and typhoon. <laughs> I was going to go down the line of her being the anti Milmuertes in that respect, but no, if you're going to go down that line, that's also. <laughs> it's, I, I think that she's she's the kind of person that can take a move like that, but. What makes her unique is the fact that she is, you know, well, she is unique. You know, that doesn't work with everybody. And no. especially you see it with people like Finn Balor as well. Uh, I think that when when he does the, the coup de grace or something, it's I always find it quite hard to believe if that isn't the finish. It's It, it just yeah. seems to me like you are, you've probably got some kind of internal organ damage at that point, And I just don't see how you're yeah. supposed to get um, up from that and keep wrestling. Yeah, but the problem is you can't work it in a way that looks good. Like... Um, someone like uh, Shane Strickland, who I, who I think is a uh, he's a good high flyer. Um, yeah, I tend to find these matches a little bit samey. Um, but his double foot stomp uh, is silly, not in the sense that if you jump on someone, they will die. It's silly in the sense that like he never looks like he hits it because he doesn't want to like just jump on someone's chest, presumably because like 
doesn't want to hurt him. Yeah, exactly. No but he just lands with his yeah. feet about fucking six feet either side of uh, <laughs> the person's chest. And so, yeah, there's people who try to do one and they try to work it and it doesn't look good. So, bad move all round, really. Um, yeah. and so, um, but we forgive them because they're the jumping bomb angels and we love them. We do. back to a few um, crazy people here at Lytham. This is our summer, although you wouldn't think so. You might be in Alaska on a wet Sunday, but uh, they're enjoying it, believe it or not. We're a funny masochistic lot, getting more and more overweight as the years go by. Everyone's sitting in front of the television and playing with their whatever they play with. Some of the kids, well, you stay sleeping, son. One day you'll be overweight and out of work. <laughs> like 90% of the world these days. <laughs> You're a classic. Yeah, You're a here classic. we go. <laughs> How to teach cup cup. Your feet on mine. Step one, teach the dog to target a book with their feet. You can either do this by free shaping, or what I'm doing here is luring the dog onto the book and clicking when both feet touch the book. This is the fastest way. The next step is getting the dog to target the book with their feet while they're between your legs. You can also use a mat instead of a book. 
Don't just say yes or click once. You want to continually reinforce the dog for maintaining both feet on the target. The next step is positioning your feet closer and closer together so that the dog will become likely to actually put their paw on your foot instead of the object that they're targeting, whether it be a book or a mat. You want to click that exact moment that the dog's foot touches yours to teach them that is exactly what you would hope for. Now you can see I've got my feet closer together and it's the way that I hold the treat, how far away the treat is from my feet and by moving the treat left and right is actually causing him to move his feet onto my feet. If you find that your dog is targeting just one of your feet, you can move the treat lure back and forth in front of your dog until they readjust their footing and the moment that they readjust their footing so that both feet are on yours, that's when you're going to click. Once you have your dog reliably going between your legs and putting his paws on your feet, you can start moving your feet a little bit. If the dog backs out, simply wait till he places his feet on yours again. It's a confidence building exercise. Resist the urge to pick his feet up and put them on your shoes. Dogs are smart and it's more fun for them to figure it out on their own. After she's finished bouncing, Splash is going to demo what the final result looks like. You can either get your dog to back between your legs before the trick starts, or to get them to go around and behind you. Remember to keep your toes pointed inwards so that the dog has a good foothold. Yes, yes, you are the best there is. The Women's World Wrestling Federation Champion. The best in the universe. You are Mulecano. <laughs> Ooh, we got a corner. 
sausage roll. Come on, England, kiss a go. Meat pie, sausage roll. Come on, England, kiss a go. Can't you just sing like the king? It's not for once you're trying, Dad. No wonder my wee smells of sugar puffs to stress that I'm under.